Hello humans and welcome to mainstream media's unending desire to make excuses for the white mass shooters that terrorize people of color. This is episode 22 of your Power Report and I'm Dan from the internet. Anti-Asian violence in both the United States and Canada has spiked since COVID-19 first began to spread in late 2019, early 2020. Um, and since the start of the pandemic, the number of documented anti-Asian hate crimes in the United States is well over 3,000, and it's almost reached 900 in Canada at the time of recording. This uptick in violence against Asians and Pacific Islanders was noted around Chinese New Year in January and February, but around then, the conversation was around the lack of media attention that was being given to these instances of violence until there were pressures from the Asian American Pacific Islander community on the mainstream media to actually start to report these cases. But then this violence all came to a head in mid-March when a 21-year-old armed white man drove to three separate massage parlors in the Atlanta, Georgia area and opened fire, killing eight people, including six Asian women. While the Asian American community was reeling from these events, in much the same ways that the Black, Latino, and Indigenous communities have in the past year, after instances of violence rocked those communities, while this was happening, conservatives tried to downplay the racism, sexism, and classism that was at play in this incident. And they tried to say that it wasn't having to do with any of those things. They tried to lie, they tried to distort, the same things they usually do. To best understand the situation in a way that mainstream media is not presenting, it involves touching upon the vast history of anti-Asian discrimination and violence on this continent. And so to help me unpack that, I was able to speak to... Evie Kwong, editor of the Toronto Star and co-host of Maiden. And also... My conversation with Evie and Jasmine was enlightening and I learned a lot and I am grateful to be able to have these conversations and to be able to share them with you. Before we begin, I want to note to stay after that conversation because I have a couple of comments I'm going to make myself about the situation going on in the governor's office in New York State. Um, and so you definitely won't want to miss that, so just make sure you hang around after the interview. Also, for those watching the video version, the Interview can get glitchy at times, but the audio is really good and the conversation is really good, so hopefully that doesn't subtract from the experience too much. And lastly, make sure to keep up with Power Report on social media. Go to powerreport.world for all of the links to subscribe via podcast or social media, or go to youtube.com slash Dan from the internet for all the videos. Additionally, links to follow Evie and Jasmine's podcast Made In are in the video description or podcast description, wherever you're watching or listening. And in addition, you'll also find links to support a number of different Asian and Pacific Islander groups that would definitely appreciate your support in this time. All right, that's all you need to know before we start. Here is my conversation with Evie and Jasmine. Evie, Jasmine, thank you both so much for joining me on this episode. Um, and I, I hate my first question, honestly, most of all, because given my experience from last year when like the George Floyd protests were happening, like Black Lives Matter was a big conversation. I was always a little bit iffy when I was asked this question, but like, what are some of your feelings and thoughts right now as we've passed like a couple of days after this like major incident in Atlanta? Go first, Ed. Okay, well, I'll take it then. I mean, it it's hard. And I, I honestly, 
you know, it, it, I think the most frustrating part of this whole thing is that something that we knew uh, had happened for even beyond before COVID, right? Like I think last year I recorded my first podcast about this topic, like, oh my God, I'm really nervous. Um, before COVID, there's also still like a history of anti-Asian racism and violence, of course. But the thing about our community, which is something we admire from uh, the Black community and Indigenous communities, is that they're outspoken and they work really much together. Whereas in our community, we are, you know, we are we are obviously billions of people just like the Black community, but there is a lot of self-hatred. And I'm not saying that that doesn't exist in other, any other communities, but um, but just denial too and gaslighting of our own situation. Uh, and so basically, you know, I think, uh, I don't know if you, you'll agree, but when people ask me, like, how do you feel? Of course, this is the most devastating moment. Like, it's so devastating. People that look like us, that are like us, that are like our mothers, grandmothers, you know, being shot and killed just for the way they look. And, uh, you know, especially because it's perpetuated by, you know, the former president who just shared, like completely didn't, didn't care about, you know, using the verbiage and attacking certain types of people. Um, but it's not a trend. And that's what I think, like, I really think that we need to remember because it's not like before COVID, before this, it's been happening, um, but now it's escalated. And so when people, when we ask, like, how do we feel? Like, I'm just like, I feel like this is something that's been bubbling for a long time on the surface. And I'm really, it's really unfortunate that this had to be addressed in this type of way, which I feel like, you know, bless the families, but it's just like, that that's my immediate feeling. I'm just like, this has been happening. You know, some of us have been trying to share that and trying to really speak up. But we don't have enough representation out here yet. And it's just like very hard. So honestly, like, that's really how I feel. Yeah, I think um, when the first kind of wave of news of um, Asian elders getting uh, violent attacks, I think I did have to kind of put into a little bit of a back burner without, uh, without like, completely dissociating from it because like uh my parents are all convenience store owners so like any images of that did really remind me of my own parents so you know I did kind of have to make sure that like my mental health uh was a priority as well so when the shooting in, in Atlanta happened I think it literally erupted every single thing in me and um and Evie and I have had a chance to talk about it before but it, it's not just about the shooting right it was uh, intersection of, you know, being a woman, especially with the shooting that happened in London for Sarah Everin. I think um, being as a woman, like, what does that look like walking down the street? Let me add another layer of being an Asian woman. And then, you know, going to the complexities of like how Hollywood has portrayed Asian women. And then also, yeah, going back to the beginning of COVID in like early 2020, and we did an interview talking about because we were having PTSD of what it was like when we were in our like early teens when SARS outbroke and what that was like for us as we were going to school. So we're having a lot of uh, memories revisiting us and then moving into that. And it's been a full year and we're still here. And then we have to have this tragic incident to have really evolved the conversation to where we're right now. So yeah, um, something that I've been kind of feeling a bit more empowered about is that when someone does ask how I'm doing, like being really honest about it and not like gaslighting myself to feel like I have to accommodate the other person's feeling first uh, and feeling like I have I can't be bold and be honest has been something that I've been like trying to practice and like yeah just being saying exactly how I feel if I'm not okay like I'm, I'm just going to tell you that I'm not okay yeah a lot of what both y'all said I I really hear and like resonate with obviously I can't fully appreciate the experience of it but um definitely my heart goes out for y'all and um the rest of the 
um, community, I a lot of what was touched on there are the intersections of all of this, how race and class and sex and gender all kind of play into this role. Um, but regardless of all those intersections that we'll be talking about more of very shortly, it seems like the law enforcement officials in the United States, in addition to elsewhere, don't really see those intersections that much. Um, you, all, you had the police officer basically denying the idea that it was a racially charged incident and said repeating what the shooter had said, which had said he had claimed it was because of his sex addiction. And then even the media kind of like jumped around the whole aspect of like where these shootings took place. These took place at massage parlors. There's a whole like different history with like sex and class that goes within that. And the media wanted to kind of remove that from the picture as well. So it seems like regardless of where you're looking, whether it was mainstream media, sometimes alternative media, but definitely even like law enforcement, none of the traditional institutions that exist, so to speak, were really describing this in a good way. And so I guess like what were some of the ways that you wish these things had been addressed? I mean, I think we should get like if this like I mean, just like we look at the facts and I, I, I so often point to and it's it's horrible, but I look to like uh, the black movements to understand, you know, what police has responded. And that's how I you know, this is like the fir like not the first time, but this is one of the many times that I've just been like, they fail us like they don't see us as people. And, you know, the fact that we got the the killer's diary within like the same day within like, I don't know, three hours, this guy this cop, you know, they basically shook hands. They're just like, tell me why you did it. Oh, I have a sex addiction. Trust me, it's not about that. I just but, had a bad day. Yeah, and also the bad day comment. It's just like, you know, when we have bad days, we don't go out in the streets and kill people, like, because of the way they look. And uh, I, I just feel like it, it was just so rude. And only we're only hearing about the victims at maybe 48 hours after, right? We still didn't know the names of two other people. And because of that precarious situation where perhaps some of these people are working, um, you know, under the table, which is often a problem in our own Toronto massage parlors. Um, and they do get sometimes involved with sex work, which is a coercion tactic or whatever it may be. Um, these people are not uh, represented. They're not even human. They're just numbers, right? So it, it, when it was eight and then most of them Asian women, it's like the media needed to listen to authority first, which really, really sucks because basically where authority got that from was the killer. You just ask him, what's why? Like, why'd you do it? Oh, you know, I had a bad day and uh, I have a sex addiction. Well, like, damn, like we all like we all have our own shit. Like, that's crazy that like this is the thing that comes out first. And yet we're still trying to catch up on these women's lives. I don't think we we're able to find it. And we're you know, this is a segment of um, people and women who are mostly like immigrant that have moved here that are providing for their sons. A lot of them were single mothers who, you know, remarried and made their life here and not necessarily the best speaking at like they couldn't. They not couldn't, but they're not the best speaking at English. This creates so many barriers for like us to report crimes. And that's why I feel like there's so many that aren't reported. But the fact that like, you know, this person targeted somebody who was already silent and made them even more silent. And now we only hear it from his side of the story. And the cops were like, yep, that's good enough for me. Let's go ahead and do it. Mm -hmm. And so that just like that kills that hurts so much and it, it just like makes us feel like we don't need more police like i don't need that we don't need that response like uh that's not the way to address these situations police literally become a situation where you know 
more police is terrible for our black and indigenous mm. brothers and sisters. It's terrible for us too, because they don't understand us, but more so like, I don't need to see more people like racialized people die on the streets because of the hands of the police or have their stories dismissed as subhuman because they had to listen to the killer. You know, it, it just makes me so sick really. Yeah. I think, um, just listening to how that cop even like made his press conference announcements after the fact, like I literally thought it was April Fool's coming a little bit early. Like the the way that he was able to just brush it off and like even laugh a little bit, like you know you had a bad day and that's just like what it came down to. And I'm like, how is this an acceptable statement coming from the police? And how does that instill safety in the community and to show any ounce of like support to the Asian community who's been like so heavily hit by this? So like. But the fact that we have allowed that, and of course, anyone that's conscious of what's happening in the world can question that statement and like kind of dissect it. But you know, the greater media and that like empire of it, like don't care and they continue that narrative. And I feel like I'm not 100% sure if like Biden even uh, was able to comment or make a statement that it was like a hate crime. And I, I don't know why we're taking so much time to dissect okay like was it actually a hate crime was it not like what yeah. makes it a hate crime like what more proof are you literally looking for a facebook post or a diary of this shooter writing down i hate asians and that's enough proof for you like i feel like we're trying to comb through so many details to make sure that we have 100 percent back when everything's literally in front of us like i don't know how to state it more clearly for people and I guess one more point I'll make just because this was something that me and Jasmine touched on is like, even when we were just unfolding to see, how, you know, he's obviously targeting Asian owned massage parlors, you know, it's a very directed map he set up for himself. Um, but we gaslit ourselves like I had that passing question in my head and I don't mind being honest about it because we're so used to being gaslit as Asian women by, you know, men by uh, even our own men at some times, you know, like, so it's like, we're like, wait, is it racially motivated? But like, why do I even have to like question myself and censor myself in that situation? And it's just like such a complex thing that we don't have the vocabulary for or the understanding for. And that's why, like I've said so many times, like we have to, like, I am forever thankful to other communities like the black community who have shown us a way of how to fight peacefully using our words and not questioning ourselves when we feel like, oh, you know, the police might be right. He might just be going to random places and whatever. But this wasn't that, and this isn't that. And so we need to be more um, sure of ourselves. So that was something that it's funny that, like, it's not funny. It's horrible that we gaslight ourselves immediately. And I'll, I'll be honest, like, the first thing I, I'm like, okay, let me read into this story. But what am I reading? I'm reading the media's depiction of it, which is the basically regurgitation oh. of the of the police which is an institution that's built in white supremacy so like what are we really reading so that's why like i felt like sad about that like we were like i don't know what was it <laughs> at the beginning yeah i i mean i can relate to that experience at least more so in my youth whenever you'd hear about like the stories of a black person dying uh, at the hands of police violence so even like the george zimmerman trayvon martin case where um i don't remember like that particular case but even like, I think what people, especially like maybe white allies, don't understand the nuances of are like the ways that white supremacy is so powerful and so like in our lives that us people of color, sometimes we internalize the ways it works because that's the default way it's taught in society. If you don't think about the news you're reading or where those um, reporters got their reports from, which is just directly repeating what, like like y'all were saying, like from the shooter's mouth to the press's ears, 
um, without having a populace that readily questions that way that information is being given to them, they're just going to trust the systems of authority that have been placed in front of them. And when those systems of authority have been the press, law enforcement, um, these entities that have been uh, like keystone parts of the white supremacist power structure for decades and centuries on this continent, it, it's, it, it should be some cause for concern, at least in that regard. But just to me, the fact that even if there were some sort of manifesto or some sort of very clear, like we saw this with the church, or the um, Christchurch shooter in New Zealand, where there was a manifesto, there was everything, and yet you still had conservatives all around the world saying that the leftists are causing all the violence, and that the um, cancel culture and all of this like talk about um, race realism or anything like that is a scourge, and we really need to protect Western heritage, and it's like. It, it, it's so deeply ingrained, and yet when you try to explain it to folks, when you try to explain it to other people, they're like, what is this white supremacy? It doesn't exist. It exists, and it so permeates so much that you don't even know it exists. You treat it as a default. That's what a lot of folks treat it as a default. And I think like that's one of the more like heartbreaking things about all of this, is how we, the society teaches us, even in our most... Um, awoken sort of moments, at least as we are in a state of time, it teaches us to second guess ourselves, to gaslight ourselves. And it's, it, it, it like compounds and adds layers to the trauma. Yeah, uh, something that um, someone uh, who's like a listener of our podcast shared in her story, and she's white, um, and as an ally, she wrote something that was like really resonated with me, which was that as minorities, because we didn't have that many representation in media that we consume, you know, we had to be observant of how white people navigate the world. So we understand their nuances and we understand how they navigate through society. Whereas if you're white, that's just your everyday life. So you never had to have the filter to, you know, actually acknowledge what happens in social situations. Because as an Asian woman, I see how white people get treated or how can I be more white? So I will study those nuances to make sure that I can, you know, be more white adjacent uh, as I was like younger, um, you know, to kind of be able to fit in. So as someone who's white, you never have to think about what the experience is going to be white for someone who's black, who's someone who's indigenous, or someone who's Asian. So I think it totally goes to your point that like, they don't have the awareness and they don't have the understanding unless you're actively trying to think about it in that format that you're never going to understand what the experience is like for someone that's visibly uh, a minority. Right. It's... It's just like a lot for me to like um, process and I think it's a very big task to like have to address and kind of think about because this is all happening within the context of I think at least over the past year but definitely something you can throw into history more broadly just this rise of anti-Asian sentiment and of course like even using the word Asian sort of like erases the diaspora aspect of like how many different sub-communities are within that but of course that's just the way american racism works at least the way donald trump was using covid19 as a political cudgel in his continuing um trade war and like other forms of war with china um elevating the rhetoric using like racist terms like kung flu or chinese virus and then there were people who were who've studied this for years and have studied um 
racism for years and goes, okay, well, this is usually what happens. When leaders begin to condone and nod at racism, usually what happens is the people around that, in that society, who follow that leader for better or worse, tend to uh, hear the dog whistle and act on it. And lo and behold, the amount of anti-Asian like, violence that's happened in both the United States and Canada has like risen over the past year. But I also want to like use this time to highlight the fact that it, that this didn't like all of a sudden start from anywhere. Like the anti-Asian racism is very much a part of the histories of both the United States and Canada. And for my mostly like American audience, I know this is like a very difficult thing to do, but like what were some of the other things in history that you felt like were leading up to this moment where there is this like major like anti-Asian sentiment going on in North America? I mean, I, we have, uh, for me, I'm like such a history person, but it, what didn't happen until I had to realize, you know, who I was. And a lot of our history is taken away from us because we don't read it in our textbooks. And I, I, I've heard the same thing from other communities too. We don't get to see what happened, but when Americans went to war, you know, and this goes all the way back to like British colonies, which we're talking about like, uh, you know, like literally thousands of years ago when the, the same call, sorry, the same colonies, mind you, that conservatives in America and Canada are now or the same British like colonialism that yeah. uh, conservatives in America and Canada are now cheering on all of a sudden because yeah. they say it's against cancel culture. I think that's separate and ridiculous, but sorry. First of all, cancel culture happens to black, indigenous, Asian, racialized communities. That is a lived experience that is not on the internet. It's not a bunch of people yelling at you. You get less resources. You get less everything. That is cancel culture in, in real life. So anyone out here scream about cancel culture, JK Rowling, I don't see you because honestly, who cares? You're living your life. You're obviously You're winning. Fine. And you have your people, the most powerful people in the world also crying about cancel culture is y'all and you have a lot of money. And I don't know why that's a problem. You have a lot of power. So that's like something that people need to understand. Cancel culture is real when it comes to people who don't have resources, who mostly are, you know, low income, you know, black, indigenous, racialized people who don't have it. And this are these are the people that they attack. You know, they like whether we're talking about police, you know, killing black people, whether we're talking about this killer, you know, killing people in like a mosque or whatever these are the people that already have a barrier in in their own life that's cancel culture that's what it is so one thing i, I just hate talking to people about is that whole thing like if they're unaware like i think the words are so powerful in cancel culture that people actually think it's like oh you're just canceling someone no that's not what it means it's holding mm -hmm. people accountable for their shitty actions which is what happens in life I mean, you hope it happens more, especially with white people in power, but it doesn't. But this is what cancel culture means. It's not cancel culture. It's you did a shitty thing. You should not have done it. And this is why you, this is the result. This like, that's life. That's how we learn life. Like, I don't know what people are crying about on the internet about that. Um, additionally to that, uh, in history, what I would say is like, you know, uh, British colonies taking over places like the Philippines. So we got Spanish people all up in the Philippines. Like that's a, just one example of the many situations that came through, right? You know, British people in India, we have uh, tons of swapping and, and like people coming into China and Korea. But if you want a really recent one with America's ties to it, it's the Korean War the Vietnam War, they rape, like it's a normal procedure to rape, pillage, kill uh, Korean uh, Korean women and Vietnamese women and all these Asian women because they didn't weren't seen as people. They were seen as like literally like a washcloth. Like that's how disgusting it is because it was so normal to do that. And so if you have your grandfather who's like a vet, who's like, you know, being praised for being a vet and he, you know, taking these sentiments home, oh, I just raped like, you know, 
so many Vietnamese women. Like they're so easy. They're so quiet. That's where the subservient Asian woman comes from. Like that's where it comes from. It's from, we're talking about like, you know, just recently in America, like, you know, just a decade ago. And then that carries on and carries on. Like I'll never forget even in Canada when I was here, like I have, a, I had a tattoo that's, I have many like Asian tattoos, whatever, like Asian inspired tattoos that really look to my heritage and like more specifically like Chinese heritage. But I had some dude come up to me, like, look at this tattoo in like the line of like an alcohol store. And he's like, Oh, that tattoo's so cool. I actually have one of like a white army soldier killing a Japanese army soldier. I'm like, why is that something you say to me? Like, first of all, I don't, I don't know you. Like, I'm supposed to be impressed. Yeah. And I feel like that's disgusting. That means, you know, your, you know, your dad, your grandpa, your great grandpa. That's a, that's a thing to show me. That's something that impresses me. Or what, what do you want me to say to that? Like you have a tattoo of a white soldier killing Japanese people. Like that is not something I need to see. And he held it like such a badge of honor. And so those are the sentiments that continue to this day for women, especially it's like rape, kill, pillage, all that stuff. And for men, it's literally just to push them to the side. You know, we have that whole trope where, you know, black women and Asian men are somehow in this world, perhaps white people have made it this way. You know, they're seen as most undesirable. And we have spoken with our Asian men as well. And it's just because they're seen as weak, just like how Asian women are seen as weak because they take these things from the war. They take these things from decades ago. It's from thousands of years ago. And it's just so sad for us. Like my relearning of it, took so long you don't learn this stuff in school you don't learn it anywhere so it's like it it, it was really sad to me like I, I didn't know what to do with it and basically I'm learning more and more but just as you know black people they don't care where you came from and black people's histories are taken away from them they don't care if you're like from Africa or Jamaica you get killed because you're black and like that is what we lose like every time we say Asia again there's billions mm -hmm. of people as too um they don't care and we have to censor ourselves as well and be like they don't understand there's many places in Asia. So we have to fight for this whole community, which is so many different histories. So it's just, it's extra complicated in that way. I was wondering if you had anything to add to that, Jasmine. Um, yeah, I think it, yes, aside from like the history and just maybe more like how it's like kind of built up, I feel like in, maybe this is like everywhere in the world too, but like the stigma that's around like Chinatown or Koreatown or any of those like minority like community sections of you know it is seemed to be for white folks to visit as like a cheap place to get food or you know it's smelly but like you want to go there for like the gram or like I think like it has made it so normal to you know have those narratives that like Chinatown is somewhere for cheap eats or same with Koreatown and then they're like the first vulnerable places to be you know taken down to rebuild condos so like taking away like the hair it is and like if anything Canada's built up being like a melting pot or like a mosaic of so many different cultures I feel like there is such like a fine line of being biased of like yeah we um thrive and want to embrace like the melting pot culture but also when it comes down to it we're going to build condos and take away the culture that you have made a home and make Canada to be what it is because we're going to start we're going to profit when we can right like at the end of the day it is capitalism it's an aspect of I mean, it's the alignment of white power and the instant, the idea of creating a white supremacist power structure and letting that sustain, even if you can't call it white power so explicitly anymore, because then a vast amount of people will get upset about that. You try to find ways to make sure that power retains itself. And it's always retained itself through the lens of 
economic power and class and wealth sometimes by owning people as property and other times by like um <laughs> other times by other means of like coercion and force but to express that amount of um property in the form of capital and to leverage that when you're basically um using that as power over people in colonial excursions abroad or even within your own countries it it, it it's permeates to even like right now what we're directly going through and yeah there's such like a direct line through between what's happened in history and what's kind of happening right now unfortunately which is why you can learn people can learn from history and kind of figure out like sort of how to navigate around it and so as we sort of like wind down um there's let me switch these questions around there's a lot of times this myth or so well there's a lot of myths really but one of the ways that i like to illustrate how white supremacy can put um different races against each other and to show how people can sort of internalize this pressure is sort of like the ideal of in the late 19 in the late 20th century in this country you had the idea of like the model minority versus the black criminality and both of those myths heading together where you had the where white people were trying to prop up the um selected asian americans who are like picked from countries who are like rich for even the countries they were in came here saw them as un overperforming and then went hey poor black people who we've been enslaved and just recently gave voting rights why can't you be more like them and so like that became a thing that black people started to internalize to a way that was like kind of pretty terrible i mean um my grandfather's family was uh among the japanese people who were interned in world war ii in san francisco and my grandfather then married an African woman. And the racism in my family that exists is already like something I don't like to think about that much, but it's also unnecessary because I'm like, but both of us were put in, like both of our people were put in jail by the same people. Like, why are we not uniting over this? Instead, we're fighting on their land. Like we're fighting on their land about the, like it's so, it makes no sense to me, um, especially living in Los Angeles. There's always this perceived idea that black people and Koreans have some sort of like sentiment because of the um, riots when even then the work of radical black folks and radical Korean folks who are doing the educational work after that to say, no, what happened here is not like, oh, black people hate Asians or whatever. What happened here is like the culmination of years of mistreatment of all of these communities. And so that's kind of like a, me <laughs> expressing a lot of thoughts I've had, but I'm kind of trying to wonder how is it that we as activists on the left who understand that like, okay, understand that like there is racism that exists in both of our communities that's very much like misdirected. How do we sort of fight that as we're in our own communities trying to even radicalize people of our own skin color? I'm really outspoken about that. Sorry, I'm really outspoken about it. I know in my culture, my Chinese culture growing up, um, we have those stigmas. And I've gotten someone as an editor, I've gotten an Asian person to write about these issues. There are there's anti-blackness in Chinese and a lot of Asian communities among older people who came here who wanted to be silent and wanted to follow and white align because that's a, that to them was a means of survival. And because the white people have told them, oh, you know, like, like that, I'm just telling you the things that they've heard from like the people in power. Oh, you know, black people are like, there's crime, there's all this stuff. They internalize it and they don't even go out to meet uh, like a black person. And I really, 
I absolutely hate that in part of my culture. I speak on it like insane amounts because there is right now currently white supremacy building in my, in Chinese cultures that I can see. It's this idea of we made it. Why didn't you? And it comes from a really wealthy, uh, you know, get my kids in Harvard type of place where uh, they hate to see black people to make, make it in Harvard. They're like, well, they're taking spots and stuff. And I'm going to be totally honest with that. I feel like there's a place for black people to be so angry at Asian culture, especially the ones the people I grew up around. I still know people. Well, I don't know people. I totally disassociate from them, but like uncles and aunties that have that mindset. And so every day I'm out here like, okay, let's look within ourselves because we see that most of the leaders that are Asian American, Asian Canadian, i.e. Andrew Yang, who's like running for mayor of New York. This guy is the full embodiment of somebody who, uh, you know, he is chasing clout. He's here, you know, talking on Asian issues, which is like, okay, talk on Asian issues. But his main response to the situation was, let's get more cops. How does that look out for anyone else? And how does the black community see that and see that that's an okay solution, and trust right? Him. Yeah. yeah. And so there are so many of these, so many of these elitist, um, I would say right wing, I would say white supremacist. Uh, Asian communities of people who have generated their own wealth in their own bubble that don't see anything and only talk to them one another or if they're in a leadership area which means like in politics and business you know basically everyone in the boardroom and all these kind of aspects are white too so they only hear from them and they think being not to be like no, actually, I'll be direct on it. Being their pet and being given a bone every so often and being like happy to be under their umbrella, that is enough for them, for them to then think, oh, you know, like, I don't like, why don't they like, why don't like black people work harder? Why don't indigenous people work harder? Why are they always doing this? And these are all horrible stereotypes started by white supremacy that continue to this day. So I don't feel like it's a touchy subject. I feel absolutely disgusted by it every time we can, but I know our young people and like, you know, we try to do that as much as we can on our podcast to be like, this shit is like, that is not, that does not fly. But we also try to get our young people. Like we had people translating um, from Cantonese, like when the, like when the, when the movement, I won't say movement cause it's been happening for centuries, but when the movement happened like in April or May or, uh, you know, after the George Floyd, after George Floyd was killed, uh, we had people translating in their own language, younger people to their elder community. So I saw one in like Cantonese, which is the language I speak. I saw some in Korean and you know, this is like the type of stuff we need to keep doing. You know, it's a lot of work, but we need to work together. It's a parallel movement and Asians, as a whole, but like not every single one, because it embodies so many types of people generally in my head have taken a safe space where without being safe at all, but it's because they're invisible and they do things without complaining. They do things just mm -hmm. like at like, you know, and they align with the white people. So if they're aligning with them and not causing trouble, which is something that my growing up people will be like, don't cause trouble, don't speak out, whatever. Mm -hmm. That is truly like, a virus that literally kills us and gets us, you know, builds on that myth that we actually don't like each other and we can't work together. And, you know, it's one versus the other. So like, I feel absolutely like crushed by it, to be honest. And it's like, I just try to do my best and try to get other people to rally and really understand when you're fighting for uh, Asian anti against anti-Asian violence and anti-Asian racism, you cannot do that without fighting for other, everyone else too. You know, like that is just not how we do things and you can never succeed if you're going to be like, like I've seen so many posts, even of recent from Asian women who are like, there was one that was like, 
like at brands where's your uh post for like w- like you did stuff for black history month like i mean uh for black lives matter where's ours and i'm like this is not the way like this is not mm-hmm. what we're doing here like you did not have to say uh compare you know black lives matter you could have just said hey brands where are you at like when we're like suffering why did you have to bring black lives matter into it right like that has nothing to do with it so it's just like we need to get a better education and grasp and have the vocabulary to understand we got to work together. It's not one against the other. Yeah. Like the common, we, it's so clear that the common denominator is white supremacy. And I feel like we forget that. And uh, as when we're getting so heated in the middle of everything that's going on, and I will hundred percent be the first to admit that like there are moments when I was younger, I remember my mother telling me whenever we get in like an elevator and a black person comes in, she clinches with her purse a little bit tighter. And like, and when I was younger, I didn't realize what was happening. And obviously as I grew older, like, and even seeing, you know, how black culture is so monetized and appropriated in Korean K-pop culture, I think it's disgusting. And I think there are more people now because they have like so many variety, like TV shows in Korea where they have expats who speak fluent Korean and talk about their cultures, trying to like, bring more light and like normalize and educate Korean elders. Um, I think there's so much work to be done. Like recently there was this uh, K-drama on Netflix uh, called Itaewon Class. And Itaewon is like a, a, uh, an area in Korea where mostly all the expats live, um, who's like there to speak English or whatnot. And there's this black character um, and there's this one scene where they're trying to go into like a club and the, the bouncer immediately just says that he can't come in because he's African. And again, we don't know if that's what his actual nationality is, uh, but just the way how a K-drama that has so much wide audience was able to kind of incorporate that. And then that scene does evolve into the main character being like, you know, we still need to look out for each other just because of skin color, like we still need to speak up. So I think that's like a small step towards into educating because you know, those um, avenues and platforms of K-drama or K-pop have so much influence worldwide. I think it is a time for us to actually be super mindful and conscious of like who is digesting that because that's the w- what's making the wave and influencing the generation be- uh, behind us and also ones that are ahead of us. Yeah, yeah it's, I think, I think the, the media, media is going to be very important, not, not just in dispelling the like, um, all Asians are like crazy rich Asians narrative, but also just like I wish, like I'm so poor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was like I think that's another thing. I think like the model minority stereotype and things that like all the um, conservative talkers that um, like Ben Shapiro in America are saying right now, saying um, they're trying to take affirmative action and use this as like a thing to just throw into the mix to get people of color to like fight each other. But the, the, this this idea that all Asians like benefit from affirmative action, like totally puts, like it, it sort of removes that there's an entire broad experience of being Asian American. Like again, like there's so many different groups and categories and not all people who come from Asian countries are coming like super rich or like it's, it's different because people are just fucking different. So I think it's gonna be really important to see that there. I think it's gonna be really important to have more instances, examples sort of like this, where you have like, Black folks, Asian folks, Latino, Latina folks, just like chilling, being together, just being friends as it is. Like my friend group is very diverse, not necessarily because I tried, but just because like, I think that's more representative of how people see life. And I think just the way, much in the same way that um, people 
will see politicians on TV and start to mimic their behavior for like for worse for sure, like not for better. Um, I think it's also an opportunity for media to express um, that there can be these differences, there can be these nuances that we can like move forward and that like um, communities can be stronger together, that like um, all these different groups and indigenous groups and white people who are like allies, we're not fighting against white people, we're fighting against white supremacy, we're fighting against systems, right? And I think that sort of recontextualization will help people to see the exact, again, like I'm not saying that like, oh, black people are the victims all the time. I have had to police like anti-Asian racism from my family, from like people I know. Um, and it's insidious and it's horrible. But I think like as long as people like us and people who are like listening to the podcast are like smart minded and become these people in their own lives, that can help in one way while the media catches up, while um, the movement building happens. And yeah, like there are marches in um, Los Angeles like happening as we speak right now. And I know there's Asian Americans, but Los Angeles is a huge city. So there's white folks, there's Latino and Latino folks, there's black folks. They're all standing out in solidarity. And like that's that's my future. That's what I see people. That's why I really see like the winning side here. Um, so like tragically, there is like a number of these tragic events like have to happen, it seems, to get that sort of solidarity. But I think it's stuff that can be built on that is hopefully harder for white supremacy to take away, I think, as the years continue to go on. Mm. Oh, that's, yeah, you're so right. I think, yeah, I even had too close to comfort of an association of a Korean woman who was sharing on her own Instagram story that what happened in Atlanta actually wasn't racially uh, motivated and that <sighs> broke my heart. And then, and then she was actually reposting messages of people replying back to her and be like oh like thank you for clearing this up and like as if it was like a badge of honor that like yeah you know what I debunked this myth and like as a Korean woman hearing that like really broke me and you know we're not supposed to be in a position of policing other um Asian community members and like I expect that from maybe elders like my parents or you know to have to have like dialogue but like it is such a scary reality to know that just because you are a woman of color or Asian or black or indigenous whatever like they're not always going to have the same value as you unfortunately and I think being conscious of that just because I'm Asian doesn't give me a free pass it does need to be a continuous active education and yeah making sure that yeah something simple as making sure that your friend group is rep active representative of what your values are like I think people are becoming more aware of like looking out for those I don't want to say signs or clues, but like they're, that's it is going to be important as you continue on moving on to the next generation. I think that's super important. And yeah, like I do hope that people can be met with those conversations with more grace and like not immediately jump to defensive or, you know, statistics that are like super and like not like, what is it? Just not relevant. And I, yeah, I think it is a really scary time that like we don't even 100% still safe within our own Asian communities because there are those bad apples out there. But yeah, I think, um, you know, it is very unfortunate, as you mentioned, that like an, a tragic tragedy like this had to bring everyone together. But I hope that it is a moment that we can look back in the future and be like, this was when everyone came together to fight for the good fight. Yeah, and I also want to say personally, thank you. A lot of the people that reached out to me were from the Black community, but didn't make me work so hard or laborious to, you know, lay because I, I can only, you know, like, 
they, they understand. We have this vein that is connecting us, right? It's not the same. It's not mm -hmm. the same treatment. Some, like, it's way more violent in the Black community. But what I will say is that instead of this, like, comparing game and situation, we share a vein of pain and um, breaking through and uh, the real definition of being canceled from all resources and opportunities in life, right? So I think that we got to understand that work together. And one thing just to really you know, that I think we could learn on both sides. Like if we're just talking about from the, my, like talking to my Asian community to the black community is that just cause you had a bad experience or seen something that involves a black person, just like if you just had a bad experience with an Asian person, please do not like think the entirety of all of us, you know, billions of people share that sentiment or have that in us, you know? And it's just like, I, I need to really stress that because it's just like, I feel like often it's like, well, uh, yeah, like uh, Simu Liu, the actor, took down the post about Mark Wahlberg. And uh, that to me, that's something I yelled at. I was like, dude, what's why would you go back in your receipts and go find these tweets from 2014 for a movie you're doing now to de like delete it? And he's like, oh, it's all about, you know, dialogue and moving forward. Okay, but you just did something so yeah and so visible like shutting up is free actually you know like i don't know why and then like go back all the way back there and just delete things that kind of erasure like we do that to ourselves anyways like you know we don't have the textbooks we don't have the history why would you forget that and you know mark Wah Wahlberg is fine like he's fine he's thriving he went through i mean he done tons of racist stuff tons of allegations the man is like a millionaire multi-millionaire okay. yeah and so I personally don't understand like, you know, our own community doing that. We got to think beyond that. Like we not, we can't just be like that. We got to work together. We share, uh, we share that uh, blockage to the top. Like, you know, we, we, we all do, uh, we got to work together. And so hopefully, uh, we don't take on a lot of us to take on the white supremacist ways of wanting to divide us and giving us classes and all that stuff that we go against each other. And we can really think beyond that. Cause like right now, if you're fighting, against each other you're fighting in your box and you're not moving from your box you will yeah. stay there forever hey man that was phenomenal and i like a thousand percent agree with that i think the work of dividing people is to be left up to the white supremacists and, and the alt-right and those because they're gonna continue doing it relentlessly so it's okay someone's already taken over that role where it's all good but um in in the meantime there's a lot of there's a wealth of work that needs to be done around building solidarity in these movements and working together and building bridges um and that's the work that i personally am vastly more interested in um so like in that spirit thank you both very much for joining me on this show um this little uh cross us canada episode hopefully we can do some more of these but um and of course under better circumstances, hopefully, as well. But I appreciate you both, Evie and Jasmine, for taking the time out. I will leave links to Made In and all the other stuff that you do that is awesome in the description below. Also, shout out Irving Chong for like uh, introducing Yay. me to y'all. This is great. Cool we that. love um, Irving. We, we, we love our Irving folks, don't we? Irving's the best. Yeah, we love him. <laughs> <laughs> we love him. He's going to love this part of the podcast. Of course. We turn to the state of New York, where the governor is embroiled in numerous sexual harassment allegations that detail a hostile workplace environment that was created uh, in large part by Governor Andrew Cuomo. Um, now, at the time of recording, there have been nine different allegations against Governor Andrew Cuomo um, of varying ranges of sexual harassment from women who have worked with him 
in the past and in the present. There are former staffers who have come forward um, both publicly and anonymously to detail some of Andrew Cuomo's behavior. Cuomo allegedly propositioned young staffers to date him. Um, he made sexually provocative remarks about aides and their bodies while they were on the job and created a hostile workplace environment where a lot of people who worked around Andrew Cuomo and around the governor's mansion felt that speaking out against the governor would cost them not just their jobs in the immediate term, but potentially their political careers, considering how well-connected Andrew Cuomo is. Um, keeping in mind his father, Mario Cuomo, is a um, well-known governor from the state, currently getting a bridge. Um, I think it's fully built now, but a bridge is being named after um, Andrew Cuomo's father, the former governor of New York. So this is a very entranced political family in one of the largest states in the country um, and definitely a stronghold for the Democratic Party. So it's this is a Democratic Party machine man, um, Andrew Cuomo is. So it's interesting to see the intersections between how this power actually plays out and how we're able to see what happens behind closed doors when uh, one of the most powerful governors in the country is willing and dealing with his power. And, you know, the story of New York politics has been one that's been full of a lot of stories of corruption and influence by the mob and similar tactics used to intimidate people you're working with that generally people in politics would be surprised to know exist. But unfortunately, Andrew Cuomo seems to be practicing many of these things and reporting has begun to show little bits of what's inside of going on in the governor's office over there. Um, despite numerous public calls from prominent members of the Democratic Party to resign, including um, prominent members of the Democratic Party in New York State, from Chuck Schumer, I believe, to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, all signing on to this letter, uh, Cuomo is currently showing no signs of admitting, adm even admitting to any allegation beyond uh, words that in he, his view were misinterpreted to be more sexual in nature than he really believed. Um, of course, there are, there's some horrible emails that are going around. Uh, one was an email that was sent to some of his aides, administrative assistants, uh, just this last year, saying, Hi gals, who can spend a little while with him when he gets back on the book signing project? Referring to your subordinate workers as gals, and spending a little time with the boss that's come on like uh, uh, hopefully people have seen enough tv or at least like low budget pornography to understand the kind of like game cuomo is trying to play here but unfortunately there is more information um excluding from a new york times article that came out a little bit earlier this month but i want to read some details for it because it's not only going to give you an example of some of the things andrew cuomo did in the context of sexual harassment but just the way andrew cuomo acts in the realm of politics when he thinks that nobody's watching or like the press isn't watching so i'm going to read a few excerpts from this um new york times article right now it was reported by Jesse McKinley and Luis Ferris Saderni from the New York Times. So, in interviews with more than three dozen legislators, political consultants, former state and city officials, and New York political veterans, a recurring portrait emerges of Mr. Cuomo. 
A talented and deaf politician whose tendency towards aggression can seem out of step in an age when abusive behavior in the workplace or in professional surroundings is increasingly called out and often censured. Quote, his primary tool for governing us is to create fear, said Kevin Hinton, a communications consultant who worked with Cuomo when he was housing secretary in the Clinton administration and has since fallen out with him. In the fall of 2018, for example, Cuomo was told by a leader of the Working Families Party who had backed his opponent, Cynthia Nixon, that would endorse him in the general election because he was better than a Republican. Cuomo's response was blunt. Quote, if you ever say, well, he's better than a Republican again, that I'm going to say, you're better than a child rapist, the governor said. How about that? He once threatened to end the career of a staffer who failed to properly transfer a call to his office, according to one person who worked for him and requested anonymity in fear of retribution. He's been known to refer to his top female aides as the mean girls, said the person who described the governor's office as toxic and controlling. Those who work in the halls of the Capitol say the governor's conduct has an additional impact, scaring some employees into near paralysis for fear of earning his wrath. I'm going to pause a bit and stop reading those quotes here. Thank you for staying with me through that. Just this excerpt from the article paints a number of different instances, one where Cuomo is working with outside political actors and the Working Families Party, which has a lot of political capital in New York State. They, as the name implies, tend to represent the interest of working families in the working class, not the uh, professional upper middle class of the elites that the Democratic Party machine, especially in New York, has been long supporting for centuries. And they said, look, you're better than the Republican option, but we as the Working Families Party still want better. We as a coalition of people that uh, you're courting votes from are trying to pressure you to represent your constituents better. And Andrew Cuomo's response to that was a threat to smear the Working Family Party as child rapists. That was his direct shoot from the hip. That was his option. That's what he was going to go with. That's the kind of politics that Andrew Cuomo of New York tries to play. And that's the kind of politics that isn't something that, you know, he felt like all of a sudden he would say this in this one instance. No, this is the kind of politics that Andrew Cuomo has been playing for years. And it's the kind of politics that Andrew Cuomo was probably taught and encouraged to play by his mentors, including probably folks in his family, probably his dad. If you think his dad didn't have anything to do with the way he uh, is styled and fashions himself as governor, then I've got a bridge to sell you. <laughs> to use a popular New York term and bring it all full circle with the Cuomo bridge here. So we're not only talking about how Andrew Cuomo behaves with political actors outside, inside his political coalition. These are Democrats. These are liberals on the left. But you also get a sense of the way he organizes his internal affairs. He calls uh, part of his staff the mean girls. Like, like, what is that supposed to imply or entail? If you, if you don't mean that as a pejorative and you mean the mean girls are working for you, that means that <laughs> these girls, again, by the way, you, we, these are women, not girls. They're above the age of 18. These are adults. The idea of someone in power, a male in power, calling, referring to women as girls in pretty much any context is ridiculous. But never mind that. The movie Mean Girls <laughs> was about a clique of popular girls in a high school who were 
kind of mean and clicky to like everyone else at the school. So if that's what your executive team is like in any context, whether you're leading an office in government or an office at a job, that's not something you want to uh, try to encourage or instill from the top down. But when you have systems of power and institutions of power that exist from the top down like this, then this is the only natural result you're going to get from these things, honestly. In my Dan from the Internet special report, Bad News, that I did last year, I talked about the deep relationships between media and power that are hidden from most people. And funnily enough, before all of this happened, I actually used Andrew Cuomo and his brother Chris Cuomo as an example. This is Chris Cuomo. Among other things, he is the anchor of CNN's primetime evening show. Also, his brother is currently the governor of New York State, and their dad was the former governor who is currently getting a bridge named after him. I will get to why this closer relationship between those in power and those who report on power should probably be more of a cause for concern later, but hosts at Cuomo's stature must shape their commentary within constraints from owners, sellers, and sources, or else they'll face flack, fear, and or firing. Let's imagine that Cuomo meant business about changing his show for the better. Let's say he took the editorial focus of his show off of the East Coast Circle Jerk, the Renta pundits were thrown out in favor of hard-hitting journalists that challenged those in power on behalf of the public. What if Chris Cuomo betrayed his class allies and familial ties because of the responsibility to use his platform for fair reporting? If all of that happened, he'd lose his sources and he might receive flack for it. And again, keep in mind, I made this point well before Andrew Cuomo published his book <laughs> claiming to have solved COVID-19 even while at the same time he was working very hard undercover to make sure that COVID deaths at nursing homes in New York State went underreported so that Andrew Cuomo could continue to celebrate solving COVID-19 in New York as a success in September when his book released, even though New York would go on to see several more spikes of COVID and, unfortunately, thousands more deaths. Before all of this happened, I was trying to point out that, hey, maybe we should think twice a little bit more often about having a major newscaster and pundit be directly connected to the governor of one of the largest states, most influential states in the country. So you might be curious, what does Chris Cuomo have to say about this whole case? Chris Cuomo, someone who has had no problem having Andrew Cuomo on his program talk about any number of things that could easily be conflicts of interest. Let's see what Chris Cuomo has to say here. Obviously, I'm aware of what's going on with my brother. And obviously, I cannot cover it because he is my brother. Now, of course, CNN has to cover it. They have covered it extensively, and they will continue to do so. I have always cared very deeply about these issues, and profoundly so. I just wanted to tell you that. There's a lot of news going on that matters also, so let's get after that. Surprise, surprise. The water's a little too hot, and all of a sudden, we can't... Oh, oh. Sorry, there's a conflict of interest here. I don't know how you didn't see this conflict of interest earlier, but I'm going to acknowledge this now and use it very conveniently so I don't have to talk about my brother who's in hot water politically. Moving on, let's get after it. <sighs> Hopefully by now... You're watching Dan from the Internet, you're subscribed to Dan from the Internet, not to stroke my egos, just so that you can be me, who is very unsurprised by these situations, sees the writing on the wall, 
and can operate my political mind and my strategy and my ability to work with people to organize based off of these assumptions that these institutions, mainstream media, government, etc., aren't just... These institutions aren't just weak in favor of the working class, in favor of people of color. They're actively working against the working class and people of color. They're actively working in favor of the powerful to make sure they stay entrenched in power. And you see, conversations about institutions can be difficult because you have to be looking at a lot of different moving things at once, all right? But when these institutions align with each other to protect power, it's helpful to like pause the moment in time in news while this 24-hour news cycle is, con is constantly happening. It's helpful to pause those moments and get a look at all those institutions while they're at play. The media, in some ways, is being very harsh to Andrew Cuomo, to be fair. And I don't mean harsh, I mean like they're being very critical. Um, people are starting to come out and tell their stories. And the New York press, New York Times is really doing a great job doing the thing it's bare minimum supposed to do, being a good uh, light to shine on power in the governor's mansion in New York. Now, considering that a lot of these things about Andrew Cuomo were open secrets that people in politics, especially New York State, knew about for a while, the fact that the New York Times is just coming out with this treasure trove of information, let's put that aside because that's a little bit more complicated to bear out. But <laughs> Chris Cuomo, top anchor on CNN, prime time, very zip-lipped about it. And I'm sure they're talking about this a little bit more on CNN proper and MSNBC and Fox News, but the truth is, on Fox News, they'll be talking about it actually barely because then they would have to admit that sexual harassment and assault is a problem and they supported Donald Trump for the past four years. So they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Either way, it's a bad faith argument. But MSNBC and to a lot of instincts, instances, CNN have bound themselves in a business manner to the Democratic Party. So they have to play team sports with the Democratic Party. They have to... Uh, cast aspersions or cast a doubt on the idea that Andrew Cuomo might not be fit to lead because of his own behaviors at times. They have to sow doubt because MSNBC especially works for the Democratic Party, not for the people that Democrats are supposed to represent. MSNBC doesn't work for its viewers. Its viewers are sold to advertisers. But the people who work at MSNBC, and we know this through Cenk Uygur's adventures through MSNBC and talking to the president of MSNBC about the priorities there at the company, the priority there is not to challenge power, even if it's Democratic Party power. The priority there is to provide access to power so the powerful people can come on your shows and give interviews where you pretend to ask tough questions, but you dance around the real issues. And so that... The media as an institution is protecting Chris Cuomo. Sorry, Andrew Cuomo. It's protecting Andrew Cuomo. Chris Cuomo as a member of the institution of the media is protecting his brother, and that's what to expect. But you'll also see the institution of power itself in government. Andrew Cuomo is acting the way the institution taught him to. And that is to be ruthless against your political opponents and your political allies, apparently, is to fight and get what you want. It's misogyny. It's just really 
vicious stuff going on. And this is the way Andrew Cuomo operates because this is the way power operates. He's never been told this is the way not to operate. He's never been given anything in the feedback loop that suggests that he is behaving in the wrong. So he continued doing this for years and years up until he's in well into his senior years now. And he's still behaving in the same way. The elite are protected by layers of institutions. And that's why I will never rush to defend any powerful person. That work is being done already. And meanwhile, there aren't enough people in positions like I am challenging that power. And it's going to take more than people like me sitting in front of cameras talking about that power. It's going to take people like you listening to these people, being inspired by people like me, hopefully, to then do something with that power. Whether it's locally, on a state level, or on a larger level, like in a state like New York, where you're joining on to make sure um, that these people are held accountable. Because the Democratic Party will not, will not hold itself accountable. And if they do, it's usually some roundabout way of helping out Republicans. But that is to say, there's also this, and I don't want to get this confused with this other narrative that Andrew Cuomo, all these allegations are starting to come out because Republicans are trying to take down Andrew Cuomo. Look, Republicans are going to try to take down all Democratic governors all the time. That's beside the point. This is Andrew Cuomo's behavior. And this is women coming out and speaking forward and telling their stories. Now, the Democratic Party, as a machine, I'm talking about the party itself, that said that they were standing with women and survivors during the Me Too movement. This is where the rubber meets the road. The fate of Andrew Cuomo's, the fate of Andrew Cuomo's political career as a governor of New York State, as a potential presidential candidate, although those possibilities got a little bit weaker over this past month, it will tell us a lot. Andrew Cuomo's future will tell us a lot about the Democratic Party's commitment to Me Too, protecting survivors of sexual abuse, and accounting to its own base, accountability to its own base, rather. But the way the system is working right now, where Andrew Cuomo is seeming to dodge at least immediate criticism, he should have resigned already if he had any ounce of shame or self-respect. Andrew Cuomo would get help for the way he's abusing power to make people scared in their workplace. The relationship between employer-employee is already so tense when you rely on this employer for your salary. If you don't make that salary, if you don't make that wage, then you lose your home, you lose your health care. If you're in an emergency, you're stuck, you're, you're out. You lose everything you own. You're then tossed to the street and you could potentially use your house and then the unhoused populations are treated so unfairly in society. So a lot of your fate is with your employer. And so, if Democrats are going to say that these people in power can continue to misuse their power, and the Democratic Party is going to look within their own house and protect these people, then how can people look at the Democratic Party when they claim they're going to protect people in the working class, or voters, with their voting rights bill, or black Americans, or Asian Americans, 
How do we trust them at their word when given the opportunity to be true to their word, they protect their own? I think these are all interesting things to think about, and I think these are all things that the Democratic Party can potentially change my mind about. But time is going to definitely tell for that. The powerful being protected is a feature of this system. So for the Democratic Party to buck against that would be going against systems that they've ultimately benefited from and perpetuated for centuries. So let that one marinate for a little bit. That's your power report for this episode. Hope you learned something and that my efforts aren't totally for naught. I, I know I sound like I hate doing this, but I, I really do enjoy doing this and I appreciate um, folks for listening, folks for sharing clips of this and folks for engaging in, interacting and making sure that I'm kept honest and that we continue doing this cool show. So that brings us to the show. Make sure you follow Power Report on social media. We're at Power Report WRLD on Twitter or PowerReport.world on Instagram. You can also go to powerreport.world. That's a website where you can find all the links to everything we're doing. Um, you can also find us, the ability to subscribe to us via podcast. It's all super easy there. And you can also check out my Twitch stream, TDIF, Thank Dan, It's Friday. On Fridays, 5 p.m., 2 p.m. Pacific, it's kind of like this, where I'm alone talking about news and politics in a fun way. Sometimes I bring on special guests. It's a fun vibe. Twitch.tv slash stream, or just for more info for when I'm streaming, follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Dan from the web. Um, also check out my podcast, Audio Phase. It's a music podcast. Uh, you've probably heard of it by now if you're listening to me. Uh, we've got a bunch of cool episodes coming down the pipeline, so you're not going to want to miss those. So make sure you are subscribed. Go to audioface.show for all of those links or watch on youtube.com slash audiofacepod. Thank you very much for joining me on this episode of Power Report. We'll be back in another two weeks with more news that matters, more opinions that you won't hear anywhere else, and a face and faces that are more reflective of the future. So until then, power's within you. Keep fighting. Stay safe.